There is this really wonderful passage in the Gospel of Mark in the Bible where a father comes to Jesus and his disciples and begs them to heal his son. That this father's son had been plagued by an evil spirit from childhood, and this spirit had caused him to have convulsions like seizures, and he would foam at the mouth. And the spirit had caused the boy to throw himself into water and into fire on various occasions, endangering the life of this child. And so the father comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds by saying, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. But the father knows that his faith is weak. And so he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus heals his child. I think we can appreciate that father's dilemma His son has been severely ill from an early age, and that father likely tried any number of remedies and strategies for his son to be healed, and none of them had worked so far. And he wanted Jesus to help, but he had a hard time believing that Jesus would be able to do what no one else could do. And so he needed help believing. Thankfully, our God specializes in helping our unbelief. He helps us with our weak faith so that our faith flourishes. And we see God doing that for Abram, or as he'll later be known, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15. And so we've been looking at the book of Genesis, particularly the life of Abraham over the last few weeks. And we're going to continue to look at Abraham over the next few weeks and months. Today we're in Genesis 15. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible, which means Abraham is one of the oldest guys in the Bible. We're looking at chapter 15. You can find it in your bulletin or in the Bibles in front of you. Hear the Word of God from Genesis 15. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, that is Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. 
but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you are a God who does speak to us to encourage us in our faith, that you want us to believe. And so, God, I pray that you would help me today to faithfully proclaim your word. Help me in spite of my own sin and my weakness. Lord, be strong in my weakness that I would clearly expound your word and make it clear, applying it to us. And I pray, O Spirit, that you would go forth in the power of your word and help us to have open hearts and open minds, open ears to hear your word and do that work that your word does within us, giving us life and giving us faith and building us up and comforting and convicting us. God, work through the power of your word this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at our passage today, the question I want in our minds is, how is it that God helps our faith to flourish? Because so often belief is hard. It's really hard to believe. We face a lot of problems. We have to be patient and wait so often. So how does God help us? And to do that, I want us to think about our faith, our belief, in terms of a very small plant that we want to grow. And so I want us to see that God nurtures our faith in its very fragile beginnings, just like a little little sapling here. He then strengthens our faith as it continues to grow. But God always makes sure to root our faith in his own faithfulness. So he nurtures, he strengthens, but ultimately he's about rooting our faith. And so first, let's consider this nurturing of our faith when it is weak and fragile. When we think of nurturing, I hope we think about something like tender care. Perhaps our mind goes to a mother holding a newborn child singing a lullaby. There's a gentleness to nurturing that we see in how God deals with Abram. I hope you don't hear chapter 15 of Genesis and be like, man, God sounds really harsh and demanding. He's accommodating. He's understanding. He doesn't see Abram's weakness as something to criticize, but something to nurture and strengthen. We see that immediately in how God tells Abram not to be afraid. 
Now, Abram could be afraid simply because God appeared to him, but it seems more likely that he is afraid because of his recent encounter we saw last week in chapter 14, where he was off in battle. And anytime you're in battle, the, the threat of you dying or being conquered is, is there. And so it shows here that God is trying to calm Abram's fear even before he brings his fear to God. Just as parents can sometimes see fear in the faces of their young children, so God sees our fears and tries to assure us not to be afraid. That's what God's saying. He says to him, I am your shield. And so just like a mother bird will protect her young by placing them under her wings, so God acts as a shield. The Lord is trying to assure him, hey, you do know that you didn't win that battle last chapter because you're awesome, right? You didn't win it by luck or chance. Like, I am your shield. I am with you. I am protecting you from danger. And I am going to give you a great reward. And Abram hears this talk of reward and he's like, oh. He's a little puzzled, confused. And he's like, well, what, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So some household servant, some guy he's hired, is going to be his heir instead of his own child. And so Abram wants to know, like, what good is any reward if I don't get to pass it on to my children? And so Abram says again, behold, you have given me no offspring. Abram here is like pointing out, hey, God, you've kept parts of your promise and I'm sure you've noticed, God, I, I still don't have kids, like even a kid. It doesn't seem that Abram's blaming God. He's just questioning what God's up to. And I want you to notice that God does not tell Abram, stop whining, you impatient old man. God does not get upset that Abram would ask a question. Instead, the Lord confirms his promise assuring him, no, 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 don't worry. Like, this guy's not going to be your heir. He's a nice guy, but you're going to have your own son. He will be your heir. See, Abram was not asking this question cynically. He genuinely wanted to trust God's promise. But as he and Sarai are there in their 70s or 80s with no child, he's starting to be like, man, oh, this is not looking likely here. And so he brought his questions and his doubts to God, and God nurtured his feeble faith. Abram asks another question in verse 8. The Lord had said, I will give you all of this promised land. And Abram says, how am I to know that I'm going to possess it? And we don't read, because I said so. God totally could have just dropped like, I'm God, I said so, that's why. But God doesn't tell him, hey, just believe harder. Just trust me. He nurtures Abram's questioning faith by making a covenant with him, by elaborating on some of the ways in which this promise will be fulfilled. And so see, seeing how God tenderly responds to Abram's fears and questions, I want you to see that God is very inviting. He invites people to come to him with questions and doubts. Too often we silence our questions instead of bringing them to God. We think that our questions reveal a lack of faith when sometimes all they reveal is a desire for stronger faith. 
Now, sure, some of our questions can be cynical. They can desire to know what God doesn't want us to know. But just read through the Bible, read through the Psalms, and you can see how God's people have always brought hard questions to God. We can do that too. Lord, why have you made me suffer from this illness? Lord, where is the peace that you promised to give to your people when I'm feeling so very anxious? God, how can I know that you are with me when I feel so alone all the time? How can I be sure that you hear my prayers when there's no audible response back, God? Why does it seem that the wicked always prosper if you are the one in control? Those are questions generated both by fear and faith. And the Lord delights to nurture our faith, to calm our fears when we come to Him with our questions. And so He wants to nurture us, as we see here with Abram. And then once He's nurtured us, He wants to also strengthen our faith. And one of the ways that God does that is by illustrating His Word and His promises through simple pictures. We see that God does this in two ways in our chapter. First with stars, and second with sacrifices. And what I want you to see is that each of these pictures illustrates God's ability to do what He has promised to do. Neither picture specifically says, here's how I'm going to keep my promise. That's usually what we want to know. How are you going to do that, God? But God doesn't point them there. He points them to, I can do this. So let's look at the stars first. God speaks his reassuring word to Abram. He's like, this guy is not going to be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And then right after that, he's like, let's go outside, Abram. And he says, look towards heaven. Count the stars, if you're able to actually do that. So shall your offspring be. Now keep in mind, there was no artificial light yet at this point. There were no street lights, flashlights, Christmas lights, nothing of the sort. And so it was very dark, meaning you could see a whole bunch of stars, like way more than we can see on any normal night, especially in cloudy Pittsburgh. And so Abram looks up and beholds the wonders of the night sky. God is saying, I want you to look away from the empty crib in the nursery of your tent. And I want you to look up here and look at the stars and I'm going to give you that many descendants. And you might be like, well, that's a really pretty picture, God. How is that supposed to strengthen Abram's faith in the promise? It's not like there are babies up there that he's just going to start dropping babies from the stars. Like, what's going on? Well, who made the stars? God did. And how did God make them? Out of nothing. He made them simply by calling them into existence by His Word. And if God can make all of those stars in the night sky out of nothing by His Word, could He not give children to old Abram and Sarai as many as those stars? Sure He could. And so God gives Abram this visual aid to strengthen his faith. Now I get it. Looking at the stars does not tell Abram anything about when this child is going to come or how God is going to overcome Sarai's barrenness. But the stars remind him that God is fully capable of doing what he promised to do. 
Like, okay, cool. So what about these animals? Because we've got stars. That's pretty. Hmm, that's not as pretty. So what kind of picture are these animals that he cuts in half? Well, as we saw in our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah, a covenant or a promised agreement could be made by walking through the halves of sacrificed animals. It was kind of like a runway of slaughtered animals, you know. And it was meant to visually signify the punishment for breaking your promise. It was a curse, meaning if I break my promise, if I break this covenant, then I will be cut in half and killed like these animals. You're like, that's great. What does that have to do with this land? He's like, this is how you're going to know I'm going to give you land. Cut up these animals. Okay, sure, God. How does it know that he will know this for certain? Well, look at what passes between the pieces in verse 17. Abram sees a smoking fire pot, whatever that is, and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Now, I don't know a lot about flaming fire pots and torches, but I know they don't have legs. And I know they can't walk on their own. And so what do these objects that seem to, I guess, float between these pieces signify? Well, they signify the Lord walking between the pieces, promising, I will do what I have promised to do. And if I fail to do it, let me be cut in half like these animals. God does not give Abram all the future details he wants, but this picture is meant to strengthen his faith in God's ability and willingness. That God is saying, I would rather cease to exist than fail to keep my promises. This is what God does with the pictures that he gives us. He points us to his ability to do what he has promised to do. Think about baptism. Baptism is the washing of water to bring you into the family of God. What does that signify? Well, it signifies that Jesus has the power to cleanse us of our sin just as easily as we can wash dirt off of us with water. Now, baptism doesn't say exactly how Jesus does that. It says that he can do it. He will do it. So we're encouraged to look to God's ability, and he uses these pictures to strengthen our faith. And the way he strengthens them is he gives us these pictures to point us back to where our faith needs to be. Our faith needs to be in God's faithfulness. If you notice in chapter 15, Abram does not walk between the animal pieces. Abram cuts the animals in half, sets them out in nice rows, and then he falls asleep. He doesn't get to walk between them. He doesn't do anything to say, I can make this happen. God is the one through the fire pot and the flaming torch that says, no, 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 I got this. I will do it for you. And so God nurtures our faith when it's fragile. He strengthens it when he's weak. And he does that by pointing us back that he will do what he alone can do. And I hope that makes sense for you. That we need to trust God's ability to keep his promises. Not our own belief in those promises. 
Think about it this way. I don't know if any of you have ever gone skydiving before. I haven't. Sounds like a nightmare, but we're going to pretend, okay? So imagine you're going skydiving with your best friend. And your best friend is like a super experienced skydiver, has had thousands of successful jumps where, like, they survive. Um, And your friend is preparing you to go skydiving. And they're telling you, like, oh, well, here are all the different harness straps, and here's where they go, and it feels uncomfortable, but you tighten them, and this does this. And you're like, oh, cool. And this is the body position you maintain in the air when you're screaming and falling. You need to be like this. And this is at the altitude on your little watch that tells you when you pull the ripcord. And if your friend is telling you all of this, and they're like, hey, just so you know, you have to do all of these things or you're going to die. If they're telling you that you're not failing is up to you, you would not be really excited about going skydiving, I would think. You'd be absolutely afraid that I'm going to fail because I'm doing things wrong. But now let's consider an alternative scenario. Your best friend is still a very experienced skydiver, but they love you. And your friend says, no, don't worry. I'm going to be strapped to your back the entire time. I will make sure that we are in proper position and your harness is on tight. I will pull the ripcord. And in the event that the main chute doesn't work, I know where the backup chute is. And I will do this. And your friend tells you not, you need to know all of this. Your friend tells you, trust me. I've done this plenty of times before. I will keep you safe. I love you. Now, how much better, aside from jumping out of a plane, would you feel about that experience? You may still be afraid. You may still be concerned that things are going to go wrong. You may not understand all of the mechanics of harnesses and chutes and how you don't die and all of that. But you trust your friend. You trust your friend's love for you. And you put yourself in their care, knowing they're able to take care of you. So let's take these from the horrifying realm of skydiving and bring it to our faith in God. If we worry that our faith is only as strong as our ability not to fail, then we're going to be filled with fear and anxiety all the time. If our faith is rooted in just the fact that we have faith, we're doomed. But if our faith is rooted in God's faithfulness, then our faith is as strong as His ability and desire to keep His Word. That means we can have peace even when we mess up, knowing that He is holding on to us more tightly than we are onto Him. One commentator writes this about this passage. He says this, Your salvation does not depend on your living a life righteous enough to please God. It does not rest on your paying personal penance for your many sins. Your salvation rests on Christ being torn apart to pay for your sins and His perfect holiness reckoned to you as you simply look to Him in faith. Your salvation is not dependent upon how good your faith is. Your your salvation is dependent upon how good the one is in whom you have faith. And Jesus is the one who strengthens that faith ultimately. Because we look and we see this one, this Jesus came to earth 
And He was cut for us. He took the curse upon Himself so that the promises of God's salvation would be fulfilled and given to us. And it's with these ideas we can then turn to verse 6. This powerful verse just placed right in this passage that is brought up so often in the New Testament. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That means that Abram's belief is not righteous in itself. It means that God counts or considers that faith as righteousness. God is essentially saying, hey, just trust me. Trust that I've got you. Trust that Jesus has done all that is needed to save you. That's what you need. And that's what we mean by when we say you are saved by faith. You're not saved because you're so good at believing. You have such strong faith. We are saved because we're like, that's the one I trust. That if I'm jumping out of a plane, that's the guy I want on my back. Because I know it's going to work out. And I may scream like a little girl the whole way down. And I may flail and flap and everything. But he's going to hold on tight and make sure we make it to the end. It's not how strong your faith is that saves you. It's the one who strengthens our faith. It's where it is rooted. And if we're saved by that faith in Him, then it's no wonder God's like, I would like to strengthen your faith. I know it's hard to believe, but let me nurture your faith. Come to me with questions, with fears, with doubts. I want you to believe in me. I want to show you all of these pictures in the Bible so that you'll trust that I can do this. I want you to make sure your faith is in the right spot because I want you to believe and so be saved. And so today, there may be many of you in here who have believed in Jesus all your life. Good. There are many of you who don't believe in Jesus. Okay. Some of you may believe, but you're finding it really hard to believe because you are suffering something really rough right now. Or maybe it's your own sin and your own difficulty believing that's making it hard for you right now. Whatever the case, I want you to hear that God says come to Him. Come to Him in whatever doubts or struggles you are having. Come to Him if you've believed your whole life or if you've never believed before. And trust in the One who nurtures and strengthens our faith by pointing us back to Him and His own faithfulness. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would give us faith. We pray, God, that You would help our faith to flourish. That You would help us to trust in You. That we would not trust our own ability to believe, but that we would trust You and Your strength. Lord, may we believe that as hard as it can seem at some times, that You truly are a God who keeps His Word. You kept Your Word to the point that You even sent Jesus to keep the curse of Your Word against our sin dying in our place, taking the punishment we deserve so that the blessings promised would be counted to us. Though we don't deserve them, our sin was counted upon Him and His righteousness is counted to us. May we trust in that and so be at peace and filled with joy in our great Savior. Amen.